read for us Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. A couple comments on these two verses before we really dive in tonight. This is the heading in chapter 5 of the the genealogy that you're going to see that runs throughout chapter 5. Now, there are several of these in the book of Genesis. Little headings that give you the list of where everybody came from and where they're headed. You'll get the heading of the nations later after Babel. And this repeats itself a few times. And that's because Genesis is a book that's in the Bible that tells you where everything came from. That's what Genesis is here for. You want to know where worship came from, where sin came from, where people came from, where fish came from, where languages came from, nations came, government came from. Genesis is your book. It describes where all those things came from. So here in Genesis 5, where this functions in the book of Genesis, because it goes back to Adam, and if we would have kept going, you would have seen uh, that Adam had Seth, and that was not his oldest son, of course, in verse 3. Um, Seth was at least the third son, and there may have been others, we don't know. But uh, remember, Cain and Abel outranked Seth, and then they um, had their own fates. That's described earlier. So Genesis 5 is jumping in here to kind of launch you into the world. Genesis 4 is showing what happened when people got kicked out of the garden. Namely, they started murdering each other, and polygamy started, and all kinds of bad stuff happened. That's Genesis 4. And Genesis 5 is going to take you to the population of the earth. Genesis 6, of course, is there's bad things happening in the earth. They're sinning all kinds, and so God's going to kill them all. <laughs> That's where the book goes. But for now, Genesis 5, it's summarizing the main point of Genesis 1 and 2, which is that God made man. He made man differently than the animals, and we read all of Genesis 1 earlier tonight. In fact, it specifically says in Genesis 5, verse 1, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, when it says man here, it's using the word for Adam. It's the Hebrew word Adam. It's calling mankind's man after Adam's name. And, you know, now that's not politically correct. You want to speak of humankind or people or some gender-neutral term. But when the Bible describes mankind, it definitely uses the masculine term for Adam. It's using Adam's name. Uh, the human race in that sense came from both Adam and Eve, but Adam is credited for it, for both good and bad. It's not all good that Adam gets the credit for. We are sinners because of Adam. Even though Eve ate the fruit first, we understand the Bible looks back at sin and says this was Adam's fault. We are made in the likeness of Adam. We have sin because of Adam, etc., etc. So for both good and bad, Adam is the representative of the human race there, and that is referenced in verse 2, even by the nature of mankind. And so when mankind is described in the Bible, it doesn't mean only male. When mankind is described in the Bible, it means male and female, or male or female, because there is definitely a dichotomy, a distinction. Uh, gender is polar in that sense, either male or female. And this is so foundational to how the Bible is going to play out. You understand back in Genesis 2, it was not good for man to be alone because he couldn't be fruitful and multiply. He couldn't subdue the earth. He needed a helper. And so at the beginning of the human race, there are gender distinctions between men and women. There's going to be uh, a calling on the man and there's going to be a calling on the woman that transfers into a calling on the husband and a calling on the wife. And that colors all of society. All of human relations go back to that. In this sense, gender is after that you're a human being, gender is the most foundational thing about you. 
It's something that has the fingerprints of God on you. God made you that way. It's who you are. When a baby is born, back before people cheated and found out ahead of time, when the baby is born, the first thing the parents would ask is, is it a boy or a girl? Or the doctor would say, congratulations, it's a healthy baby girl. Everybody goes, yay. Or congratulations, it's a healthy baby boy. And the guy goes, oh. I have three girls. I won the lottery three times. This is the basic distinction in the human race. You understand the first thing about you, other than that you are a human and not a dog or a bird or a fish, is that you're a male or female. It's so foundational. And I belabor the point only because the reason it's so significant is because God made you that way. God designed you, chose you. Now, God named you in eternity past, but you're given a name by your parents. It's another little marker of God's sovereignty. Your parents named you, and they could have chosen whatever name they want, but they chose the name that God had for you. It's delightful. Your gender, though, that's given to you by God. Your parents didn't choose it for you. They didn't get to vote. With I think it was our second child, I wanted to... But I said, be a true Calvinist and not find out the baby's gender until she was born. And uh, uh, Deidre told me, okay, you, you can be surprised, but I'm going to find out. And I was like, well, keep it a secret. She's like, well, you're going to see the room with like either pink or blue in it. So you're going to know. Like, all right, all right. I said, I'm going to be a true Calvinist and find out when the baby's born. And it, somebody pointed out to me that Calvin actually knew that his wife had children before they were married. So Calvin knew the gender of his babies when he got into it. So even that logic failed me. <laughs> It's so foundational. This is why our society is an open rebellion against gender. It's not because the concept of male and female is really that polemic or that difficult to grasp. It's not obscure. It's pretty, again, foundational. It's pretty obvious. Our society is in rebellion against it, not because it's a difficult concept to understand. Our society is in rebellion against it because it is the most innate part of you and how you're made. You can deny the image of God, which our society does very well through things like abortion and racism and 10,000 other sins that diminish the, the nature of God in people. But gender is where the action's at. If you can deny the existence of gender, then you begin to erase how God made the person. And erasing how God made the person is a step towards debasing the person. It is a step towards erasing the image of God, which leads to exploitation and sexual crimes against children and 10,000 other things that are not difficult to foresee. Now the kind of language that our society uses about gender is very different than verse 2. If you're male and female, he created them. Now our society uses language like sex assigned at birth, as, a, as if it's a derogatory thing. You know, what was your sex assigned at birth? Even medical forms in the most innocuous places will ask you what sex you were assigned at birth. Because if they ask you your gender, now in our society, you ask you your gender, they may not get the answer that's helpful because medical treatments vary based upon your, uh, your sex. And so if you, if you say you're a gender different than your sex, that's actually robbing the doctor of what he needs to know. And so the new question is what sex were you assigned at birth? Implying that you can move away from how God made you. I went and re-listened to a sermon that I preached, I think it was seven years ago or so, on this, this topic. We were over in the atrium on a Sunday 
Sunday night service, there was something going on in Fairfax County Schools. I don't even remember the exact details of it. And uh, they were adopting a proposal for gender neutrality and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, everybody was feigning ignorance back then. They were saying, oh, this isn't about the sexual revolution. This isn't about transgenderism. This is about... Uh, you know, a child who is, you know, abused at home and has a rough home life and the parents are, uh, you know, treating him in a certain way or maybe even making a boy dress up like a girl to kind of punish him. His, the school should be a safe place. That was the language they were using. The school should be a safe place. And all of these activists were, were protesting and, and mostly Christian and Catholic activists were protesting the school board saying, well, you know, what are you doing? This is going to lead to sexual assaults in the bathroom and this is going to lead to teachers cross-dressing in front of their students and all kinds of uh, pornography in the library and all kinds of stuff like that. And the school board was saying, oh, no, 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 no. That's not at all what this is going to lead to. And so it's interesting just checking in seven years later and asking yourself, like, who was telling the truth back then? Who was telling the truth? Was it the protesters or the, the school board leaders? And you would think if you're confronted or caught in such, you know, outlandish denials and falsehoods that you would apologize or something like that. Repent is a more biblical word, but no, of course not. The language sex assigned at birth has taken on such meaning now because of the way gender is taught in schools. You know, this comes from the universities. People get teaching credentials. That you can major in gender studies and get your degree in that. You then cycle back to the schools where you're teaching it. And so this is just the basic concept now in children's books, in, um, in schools all over the place. Basic understanding of gender now. It's so different than what you see in Genesis um, chapter 5. Now there's four components of gender. And this, by the way, is from 2015, I'm sure. Uh, gender studies activists would be just appalled at this right now. I remember showing this seven years ago, and this was like cutting edge then, but I'm sure much of this has been denied in the last seven years. Four components of gender, according to the politically correct wisdom of the year of our Lord 2015, is gender identity. That's one component of your gender. That's how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a boy or a girl, a male or a female? But that's not your gender. That's just part of it, one component. A second component of it is your gender expression how you present yourself. A third component, just one factor of it, is your biological sex, what gender you're born with. And that's the part I'm sure has been attacked now and, and erased. And then fourth, your sexual orientation. Those are the four components back in 2015 of gender. You take those into a, you know, a pot, you proportion them, and everybody can proportion them differently, and that determines what you will present. This is the background for presenting gender on a spectrum. In our culture now, gender is not binary. It's not uh, 2X or X and Y, uh, 2X for female, X and Y for male. No, no, no. There's many, many, many more genders. You know, it was kind of comical back seven years ago when Facebook had 62 genders or whatever you could choose from. And that was, you know, something you laugh about. And now just those categories have been obliterated. Male, female, or just whatevs. That's kind of how it works now. And this comes from a separation of sex from gender. Sex is number three in your list up there, the biological sex you're born with, um, and then gender becomes what you were assigned with in relation to your biological gender, which of course is subject to change. My middle school grammar teacher, Cleveland Middle School in Albuquerque, New Mexico, my, I think, seventh grade English teacher, uh, Mrs. McKay was her name, and this is ingrained in my head. She taught us the difference between sex and gender is that people have sex, nouns have gender. And I'm sure she would be fired for that today. 
That is a basic truth, though. Sex is your uh, biological capacity that you are born with. Gender is something that just exists in the world. You know, gender is a function of language. Uh, in my Bible program today, I looked up a topical guide of gender, and everything that came up was about grammar. It was about the idiosyncrasies of Syriac and Aramaic, not what I was looking for for tonight. You know, you understand that gender is, it is innate even in language. It's socially constructed in language. You know, a taco has a masculine identity, a tostada has a female identity, and it is not because one is crunchier, harder, or sterner than the other. If you get them a Taco Bell, they're both equally poisonous. <laughs> so in that sense, gender is a social construct. But when it comes to people, it is, of course, innate. It is, as Genesis 5, verse 2 says, male and female, God created them. This, of course, has gone mainstream in the last few years with what is called the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Study Manual in psychology. It is commonly referred to in the psychological world as the Bible of psychology. Um, there's, and that's not a coincidence, by the way. In the psychological world, the DSM is their Bible. It is the infallible guide. It is very, psychology now is very much a religion. It's got its own gods, its own priestly class, its own sacrifices, its own language, its own terms, its own church, its own rituals. The only thing they're missing is forgiveness. They don't have that. But they definitely have their own Bible, the DSM-5. And, uh, and the TR at the end of it is the, uh, the text revision. That's the new one that just came out think around a year ago. It has a whole category that's incorporated gender studies into it. Uh, and uh, it's helpful, I think, for you to know about it because I don't expect any of you to have the DSM-5 or to read the DSM-5. I've had people ask me, like, why do you care so much about what the DSM-5 says? You know, nobody has that. It's not for sale in our bookstore. It's not on our shelves in the church. Well, of course not. But it is so significant because like a, like a seminary textbook affects pastors, even if you don't have that textbook in your house, it affects what I read and what I say. So that kind of book affects the psychology world, which affects counseling, which affects teaching accreditation. It affects anybody who touches it and what they teach and what they spread to those underneath it. And it is extremely noxious and poisonous. And that's why I want you to be aware of what it says so you're not caught unawares. Uh, and it has a whole section on gender. I want to walk you through what it teaches about gender dysphoria right now. It recognizes gender dysphoria as a uh, psychological disorder. And, uh, you know, it's something that can be prescribed, identified. This is a, it's, DSM stands for Diagnostic Study uh, Manual. It's like what you're diagnosed with. It's to help people diagnose uh, any psychological disorder you have. And gender dysphoria is one of the psychological disorders. And here is how it is... Uh, Identified. Now, I don't know if you can read that. Yeah, it's bigger behind. Great. Well, I'll walk you through what this says. You have gender dysphoria if you check a few of these boxes. Uh, so you don't need all these boxes. A few of them suffices. Uh, first, there's a marked incongruence between one's experienced and one's expressed gender. So just think about that phrase for a second. You can't really get past the first sentence for needing to stop. Your experienced gender. That's, so that's how people treat you, I suppose. Um, the phrase cisgender comes into play. That's if, if you feel like you're a boy and you were boy, born with boy parts and you feel like you're a boy, you're cisgender. That's your experienced gender. Your expressed gender could be different than that, of course. But if there's an incongruence between your experienced or expressed gender and your primary or secondary sex characteristics, 
And I believe by primary and secondary, they mean primary what you're born with, secondary what you develop at, at puberty. So that's a distinction between that and your gender. So if you see an incongruence there, how do secondary sex characteristics play out in adolescence? Well, in young adolescence, you're anticipated sex characteristics. So you see where that logically you can't get through the first point before it's breaking down. You feel an incongruence or disconnect between how you feel now and your anticipated body in the future. Not even an incongruence between your body now. Because you would think, hey, gender dysphoria could be, I feel like a girl when I have a boy's body. But what do you tell somebody before puberty who feels like a girl but doesn't have a man's body yet? Oh, it's his, he feels a marked incongruity with his anticipated body in the future. I mean, this is totally whacked. Secondly, a strong desire to be rid of one's primary and or secondary characteristics because of a marked incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender. Or in young adolescents, a desire to prevent the development of anticipated secondary sex characteristics. This is gender dysphoria. Like, I don't want that body that I'm going to get. I mean, this is like every 12-year-old, isn't it? But thirdly, a strong desire for the primary and or secondary sex characteristics of the other gender. So you really want a different body than you have. Fourthly, a strong desire uh, to be rid of the other gender or some alternative gender different a strong desire to be of the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender or a strong desire to be treated as the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender, some alternative gender. You recognize you've fallen in the wormhole at this point. There's no coming out. A strong conviction that one has the typical feelings and reactions of the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender. Just marvel. What a mastery of English language and obscurity right there. A strong conviction that you have typical feelings of the other gender that you don't have. I mean, it's tempting just to make jokes at this. Like husbands are trying to figure out the strong feelings of a wife since the Adam and Eve, you know? <laughs> but you don't really want to dismiss it with a joke because of the, just the rampant harm that it is doing in society. I mean, this is the idea that you think, like, I don't feel like a boy, I bet I feel like a girl. And the target audience of this isn't even you in your, you know, 30 or 40 or 50-year-old body. The target audience here is 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds. That's who the target audience of this is. That's who they're after. So the 11-year-old boy who says, you know, I think I feel like a girl. Or the 11-year-old girl who's slow to hit puberty and her friends are hitting it first and she's looking at her body and she says, I don't feel like a girl. The DSM swoops in and says, aha, have we got a solution for you? Now, these are not sufficient to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, to be clear. A few of them, if you can check a few of these boxes, you move on to the second stage in the DSM. The second stage here is they have to be paired with these criteria. So this is how you're diagnosed. So you have those internal desires. If they're paired with this, a strong desire to be of the other gender or an insistence that one is of the other gender. So here you're going to personal experience. Now the person that says, I insist I'm the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender. In boys, 
and they have to put in the parentheses right here. This is, again, it's, it's comical how logically flimsy this is. In boys who have the assigned gender of boys, like there's no other way to say it. We don't believe in boys or girls. We reject that dichotomy. Gender's on a spectrum. But we're wrestling with the fact that in order to diagnose gender dysphoria, we have to have a binary. We have to say there's only two, even though our foundation here is there's not only two, there's a million, but in order to get this whole ship to sail, we have to say there's only two just to get out to port. And so once we push out, we'll get rid of this. But for now, if you were assigned boy, you have a strong preference for cross-dressing or simulating female attire. Again, the target audience here is like kids. Does your son wear his sister's dresses? Ha ha ha. Bring him in. Or what about for a girl? In girls who were assigned gender, of course, just for the sake of discussion, a strong preference to wearing only typical masculine clothing and a strong resistance to the wearing of typical female clothing. A strong preference for cross-gender roles, whatever that means, in make-believe play or fantasy play. So the girl wants to be the dad who goes to work or the boy wants to be the mom that stays home. That must be gender dysphoria. We think, isn't kind of the worldview that's producing this that women can go to work? Isn't that kind of in the worldview that's producing this book? Then how can a daughter who wants to be the worker be a sign of gender dysphoria if there's no gender distinctions in the workplace to begin with. It just doesn't make any sense. A strong preference for cross-gender, uh, I said this, a strong preference for the toys, games, or activities stereotypically used or engaged in by the other gender. Again, a boy with, I have friends that have, you know, young kids with older sisters. What do you think the two boys play with when they're around the house? They play with their sister's toys. What if they respect their sister and they want to be like their sister when they grow up? What if they have an older sister? You know, what if your older sister is 12, 15 years older than you're a boy and you've got an older sister 15 years older than you and you respect her and you want to be like her and you play with her toys and you can see where this is going? What is a healthy relationship? It's good to respect your older siblings. It's good to play with toys around the house. That's totally normal. In a healthy family, that's great. But not in this world. In this world, it's a sign of gender dysphoria. Oh, this keeps going, by the way. A strong preference. I don't want to belabor this all night, but I do want you to be aware of it. A strong preference for playmates of the other gender. Again, you just think of a thousand things, but families with a mixture of boys and girls, of course you're going to see this. So they put in a strong preference. It's so subjective. In boys, assigned gender, a strong rejection of typically masculine toys, games, and activities, and a strong avoidance of rough and tumble play. Notice this is just playing into stereotypes, isn't it? Like you've got a little boy that doesn't like wrestling that you associate with boys. Like his older brothers wrestle, and he's like, I don't want to get hurt. Ooh. You know, or a little girl who has older brothers, and she wants to join in in wrestling. Uh-oh. Or for girls and their assigned gender, a strong rejection of typically feminine toys, games, and activities. 
you think of you know, toy stores that are attacking segregating toys, and that's kind of coming full circle. A few years ago, toy stores used to stop segregating their toys and bring them all together, and they found that it hurt sales, and so they're going back to it. <laughs> but even in a world if the toy shelf becomes blurred, how is this even feasible? A strong dislike of one's sexual anatomy. Again, that's very typical in adolescent kids, both boys and girls, to dislike your body. I mean, that's like a normal phase people go through. But what if you're going through that phase now? You're going through that phase and you don't like your body and you're upset about how you look and you go to school and you realize the quickest path to popularity is to present yourself as the other gender. So you're the, the girl that develops more slowly or more quickly than your friends, and you think, I stand out, I'm not popular. Again, a very normal middle school experience, right? But if you're that person and you feel isolated and now you have the highway to popularity, if you get on this by presenting yourself as the other gender, that is a drug that is hard to get out of. You go from being isolated to being popular in a moment. A strong desire for the physical sex characteristics that match one's experienced gender. And now the switcheroo is complete. The last one on the list and the switcheroo is complete. Your experienced gender at this point, we're no longer diagnosing gender as for it. That's what it is in the book. But you're no longer really doing that game when you say, I feel like I want the body that matches the toys I play with. Then you have it. That's gender dysphoria. The DSM-5 goes on to talk about how to treat it. First of all, in order to treat it, here's two presuppositions we enter in with. First of all, support must be given by a therapist without the therapist having any predefined gender identity or expression defined as preferable to another. So in order for you to treat this, the starting point is the therapist or the person giving the treatment cannot want one outcome over the other. And this is why this is so backwards. You would think if you're actually trying to help the person, like let's, let's play this straight for now. Let's play it straight. The 13-year-old comes to you and says, I want to be, the 13-year-old girl comes to you and says, I want to be a boy. I, I think I need a boy's body. What's the right way to help that person? Just like take Genesis 5 out of it. Let's just go into the world we live in. What is the best way to help that person? to help them work through acceptance and the body they have and know that they can have a fruitful life and a, and a happy life like they are, that would be the right way to direct that person, even by worldly standards. Like there's a way for you to fit in. But no, the starting point to operating in this is to not prefer that. And obviously, if you've made it this far in this system, you know the ending point is, is going to be definitely a preference. Like nobody reads this and thinks like, Oh, <laughs> they don't have an agenda here. No, they, they definitely have a preferred outcome in this. Secondly, psychological attempts to, quote, force a transgender person to be cisgender are unethical. This was a big deal in California last year because of this new revision of the DSM. There was a bill in California that would ban the sale of books that encouraged the, quote, forced conversion of people to a cisgender identity. Well, there's really one book on that list that they're after. Let me give you a hint. It's in every one of your laps. 
I mean, that's, that's the target here. And here's the right way to support the transgender person. We'll get to this and then we'll get out of it. The right way to support the person with gender dysphoria, uh, dysphoria, three categories. First, socially, use their preferred pronouns. Second, legally, prescribe them a new gender, get a passport with a different gender, driver's license with a different gender. Thirdly, medically, if they're prepubescent, give them puberty blockers, gender-suppressing hormones. And finally, some adults, and less often adolescents, may undergo various aspects of surgical affirmation. I thought about showing you a picture of what that looks like, but I, I went back and forth to a show. I mean, they take off a part of your arm. I mean, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. And they're doing this to kids. Um, it's incredible. And this is already making its way through the medical world. For example, I uh, yanked this off of the Duke University website. Name moments ago, they have a medical center for child and adolescent gender care. Um, just think about having that. Medical center for child and adolescent gender care. And they say, quote, gender identity is the only medically supported determinant of sex. So XX, XY, get that out. The only way to rightly identify somebody's sex is their gender identity. And they add, so we've left the DSM here around Duke University. They've add, it's counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external reproductive organs, secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity in order to classify someone as male or female. So in other words, if you feel, if you have an identity that you feel that is distinct from your secondary, which means you're anticipated, for a prepubescent person, your anticipated physical identity, it's your identity that is your real sex. So this is Full circle. It started by decoupling sex from gender. That's where things were seven years ago. The goal was to decouple seven years ago sex from gender and make them two different things. But now it's been in orbit for seven years and it has circled back around. Now the goal is to join the two together again. They were separate for a while and now it's to bring them back together. It used to be, you know, 20 years ago, gender was determined by sex. Seven years ago, separate those two. They're two different things. And now it's to bring them back together only to say that sex is determined by gender. And here's where I just want to pull the car over and say this is what the experts teach. This is probably not what most transgender people believe. It just isn't. This is what the people in schools and hospitals and psychologists that have the person in the chair, this is what they believe. The reality, and I read this from a report from the Heritage Foundation, that was very sobering. You know, they said that most transgender people are victims of this world. They're not the perpetrators of it. They're the victims of it. They got sucked into this world, and they really don't know how to get out. I mean, you think of a parent. You send your kids to school. Your kids are taught this from a young age so that when they hit this, they, they experience this, and the parents don't know how to navigate this. They don't know what to do with, with, with this child, and they're told, you need to support this child. You need to affirm the child in their new gender identity. If you don't, they could commit suicide. They say things like, it's better to have a, a living son than a dead daughter kind of language, and the parents are victims of this. The kids are victims of this. The kids are being taught this by their teachers. They're victims of this. And that should make you recalibrate how you engage in this topic. I do want to help you think through this topic with a few truths. I want to give you three truths tonight. If you're taking notes, write this stuff down, not that other garbage. Write this stuff. 
three truths about gender. First, gender is real. Gender is real. This goes back to Genesis 5, verse 2. Male and female, he created them. That is a real thing. It's not a social construct. With language, sure, it's a social construct. It's about the etymology and the morphology of words. I get that. But in people, gender is real. And if gender is real, how can it be a social construct? You want to think through this very logically, very critically, very carefully. If there is something innate about the person that is male or female, and there is, how can gender ultimately be a social construct? This is the heart of the transgender movement, is to say gender is not real in this sense, and simultaneously say that you feel trapped in the wrong body in the other sense. You recognize it's logically contradictory right out the gate. But the idea is if I can decouple it from how I was made, then I am the one who determines it, not you and certainly not God. This is where the pronoun pins come in. This is where the, the insistence that you recognize me by my gender. Uh, you know, gender is not a real thing. It's not true except in as much as I define it's true. Because at this point, it's not about gender. It's about the deification of the individual. It's about the person saying, I determined who I was, not God. It is very much an attack on God. If you think through it, the transgender movement encourages a radical expression of gender, but then demands that you conform to their expression as if it was true. So they obliterate gender distinctions, but then say, I have my own gender identity, you must conform to it. So you conform to those gender identities, bad. You conform to mine, good. Recognize in the heart of the transgender person, there's a push-shove situation between gender and sex. They say, I have this biological identity. I have the socially perceived desire to be in a different biological body. So if you have your own anticipated gender pushing against your own gender expression, or you have a fight between your parts and your heart, so to speak, if you have a fight between those two, why should the parts give way to the heart? Why do you want to say the heart triumphs over the parts? Why does your heart win over your body instead of the other way around? Like if we're just going to embrace the whole worldview here, let's, let's play along. You embrace it. Why does the heart win over the parts? And the answer is because the person asserts autonomy over their hearts. Whereas God made the parts. But the parts are real. Every time a baby is born, it's testimony to the fact the parts are real. You know, the, the uterus didn't go to a gender studies course. Babies are born one way. And this, by the way, is behind the push to have, you know, babies with two fathers and two mothers and all this. And, you know, that it really doesn't work that way. Well, first of all, gender is real. God made it that way. It's in you. It is just, even the transgender movement confesses that there would be no transgender movement if there was not the granting that there's a biological capacity that is true. I mean, otherwise, you say, I have a boy's body, but I feel like a girl. Why do you need to change your body then? Just the changing of the body is granting that gender is a real thing. And I know you know this, but I'm, I'm saying this just in case there's somebody who's caught in this. I want them to hear it from my own lips. Like, if there is a war in your heart between how you feel and how you, how you look and what your body parts are, you know, the, the way God made you is true. Gender is a real thing. It is a real thing, which leads me to the second point. 
Sin is also real. And sin is not a social construct. Sin is real. For the person who feels trapped in the wrong body, I would appeal to them to see that that is actually a lack of trust in how God made them. That's an elevation of your heart over, over the Lord. Because you know God made you in a certain way and you say, I don't like how he made me. I don't feel comfortable with how he made me. I want you to understand from the Christian perspective, that is sin. When you say that I don't like what God did, that's sin. And everybody is a sinner, of course. And you see this in a thousand different ways. You see it in the single person who's not content with being single. You see it in the materialistic person who's not content with what they have. You see it in the married person who's frustrated with their kids. You see it in the the normal, just Joe everyday person who's angry at the person who cut him off in traffic. You're late to work because you hit the red light and you're mad at Providence. I mean, that is the same sin in everybody's heart. It manifests itself in different ways. A person who feels trapped in the wrong body You say, I don't feel like I correspond to how my body is. Just change the word slightly. I don't feel like I correspond to how God made my body. And that's the problem. Now, sin has entered the world, of course. Bodies are diseased. Minds are diseased. There are psychological disorders in this world. Of course there are, because our minds are corrupt. Our minds decay. Our minds are subject to sin. Our bodies are subject to sin. And so the transgender argument is, hey, gender is subject to sin. Since your bodies are, of course, gender would be as well. And that's why I took you to Genesis 5, verse 2, so that you see that God made male and female before sin. Male and female, gender distinctions are not a result of the fall. They are not. Eve was made as a helper for Adam before the fall. So sin is real. And sin, by the way, is logically contradictory. It's logically contradictory. All sin is logically contradictory. There's a thousand examples of this in the Bible. I mean, just choose one. Samson is my favorite one. You know, Samson has Delilah tie him up, and over and over again, the Philistines attack every time. And what does he think that next time he won't be ambushed? you got to be kidding me. How dumb is Samson? Uh, and he's not around to punch me, which is good. I mean, that's, that's the perfect picture of sin. It just makes you so dumb. And you think, this time, it'll satisfy me. This time, sin will make me happy. It didn't yesterday. It didn't the day before. But this time, it'll work. The whole transgender movement is also logically contradictory, as all sin is. Because if gender is flexible and social, how can somebody feel trapped in the wrong body? It does not make any sense. Why attack the physical body if the gender is different than the physical body, rather than attack your expectations in your heart? Well, thirdly, God is real. This is back in Genesis 5. God created man. God is real and he is good. And this is at the heart of this discussion. God made you and he made you intelligently and he made you with a good design. It doesn't mean everything about you is perfect. You're not Adam before the fall. You have flaws. You can have some biological flaws that are not your fault. They're your parents' fault. You can blame them. It's not really their fault though. It's their parents' fault. And you can chase this thing all the way down to Adam in the garden. It's Adam's fault. And he's the one. There are things that are true about you that are, are flawed or the product of sin. That's absolutely true. Nevertheless, God didn't make you anyway. 
knowing that you would have those flaws, knowing that you would have those deficiencies, God made you. You say, I didn't ask to be born. Well, that's fine. You're not God. But he sovereignly appointed you to be born. He brought you into this world by his own good nature. And God, if he is anything, the Bible says, he is good. Part of his goodness is his holiness. He will judge sin. Part of his goodness is his kindness, his benevolence, that he judges sin, but because he's benevolent, he offers forgiveness for sin. He offers a way to have your sins removed from you. And this, of course, connects back to the songs we sang earlier, that God, because he's good, he made you. He made you knowing that you would be a sinner, knowing that you would rebel against him, knowing that you wouldn't trust him and would pursue yourself. And he made you a way to have your sins forgiven through placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's just the basics of the Christian worldview. That's the basics of the gospel here, that Jesus dies to take away the penalty for your sin. Jesus led the sinless and perfect life, yet he took your sin anyway on himself, paid the penalty by taking the wrath of God in his own body for your sin, rose from the grave on the third day, demonstrating that your sin is paid for and he conquered death. And if you place your faith in him, you can have your sins forgiven and you will rise from the grave when you die as well. So that's the goodness of God. It's on full display in Jesus Christ. Gender also has become its own religion. And there's certainly a war between gender and God. And I circle back to what I said earlier, that the the whole transgender movement is going to war against God. Because it's a war of deities here. It's a war of the God who's the creator of the universe and the war of the God of the gender movement. And so ask yourself a few questions. I want to close with these three questions. First of all, which God wants to attack your body. This is the showdown between gods here. The God of the Bible and the God of the gender world. Which God wants to attack your body? Which, which God is after you harming yourself and taking pieces of your flesh out and cutting things off of your body? Which God is doing that to people? That should be a little window here into the worldviews behind those two gods. Secondly, which God loves you? One God gave his son to die for your sins on the cross. And the other God is convincing you to hate yourself. One God is showing his love towards you and the other God is showing his hatred towards you. It's not hard to see if you take a step back. I recognize when you're in it, you feel the war inside your heart, it may be harder to see. It's harder to tell who, who loves you and who doesn't. You know, your friends all encourage you in your new gender expression. Your friends are, you know, cheering you on, yay, yay, yay. And the Christians around you are all, nay, nay, nay. And so you think, oh, that's confusing. These people all love me and support me as I want to be. And those people are all telling me it's wrong. I, I get in the moment you feel that. So it's helpful to take a step back and just ask the basic question of which God is declaring love through sacrifice and forgiveness, in which God offers no forgiveness, which God is attacking your body, and which God is embracing your body. And thirdly, I know there's a third question. Thirdly, why should I believe your God and not the real God? If it comes down to it, if you believe the gender transition movement all the way to this point, why would one believe that over the Bible? Like, let's embrace the worldview. Gender and sex are different. Gender is on a continuum, and yet it's also 
you know, polarized in terms of your physical body, and so you need to change your body to match where you feel in the continuum. I buy the whole thing. Let's just pretend that's the whole worldview. I get it. I understand it. Why would I believe that over Genesis 5, verse 2, that God made male and female? What is the evidence? What is the argument beyond your feelings about how you feel trapped in the wrong body that does not correspond to biological or physical reality as the world is? What's the evidence for that? It's actually staggering. Ryan Anderson at the Heritage Foundation makes this point, and it's stuck in my mind. It's actually staggering how little evidence there is for the transgender movement. Like, how little the medical studies are. Little footnotes in the DSM-5, they don't take you to anything worthwhile. They don't take you to, like, you know, they take you to studies about suicide rates that are exactly the same for people after transgender surgery than before. It's not like the surgery helped. This is why so many psychologists are jumping ship on this whole thing and saying, that all right, they've gone too far. Because there's just not the evidence to support it. And you jump over to Christianity and you just think of all the Bible passages we read today. They all describe the world the way it is. And it culminates in the empty grave. That Jesus rose from the grave. The grave is empty. You can get on a plane and go to Jerusalem and stand in line and walk into the empty grave. It's, his body's not there. Like it's a pretty big piece of evidence. And the Lord offers forgiveness to people that come to him. And people have had their lives changed for the good. Just a stark contrast with the transgender movement, which just has carnage and regret everywhere in its wake. If somebody asked you why you wouldn't use their pronouns, why you wouldn't use their preferred pronouns, why you care about which bathroom they use, I mean, that's the answer. Your soul is at stake. All the people that are cheering you on, it's just, they're cheering you towards the grave. And the Lord is inviting you to life. It's just a fundamental difference. And I hope it's a difference that you perceive as well. God, we're thankful that you made us and you made us good. And you made us for your glory. We know that sin has entered the world so that we are born morally corrupt. We're born with sinful desires, hearts that are deceitful and wicked above all else, Jeremiah says. That sin is not confined to the transgender movement. That sin is ubiquitous. It is every, it's in every heart here. It's in my heart. Yet despite our sin, Lord, you've loved us. You loved us through Christ. You've shown your love for us that, well... We were still sinners. Christ died for us. Well, we were enemies. You gave Jesus for us to show your love for us. So Lord, I pray as we think about the way you made the world male and female, you created them, that we would root all of this in our identity in Christ. We're made in the image of God. We're made male and female. We are made to worship and to love you. We're made to receive forgiveness from our sins. You designed us for that, to display the glories and the matchless wonder of Christ in our hearts. You did that for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. 
I hope this resource has been a blessing to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.